it's exactly like you know you you read these Viking stories and uh, you have a, a picture of what's going on, and this is like ground zero for for that for you guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in fact, you know, quite a bit of of the um, movies and the and the TV shows that are being filmed, including Game of Thrones and, and all of that, is filmed in Iceland. So they they borrow the landscapes. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 99 of the Rotary Wing Show. Wherever you are in the world, hopefully you can kick back for the next hour or so and know that you're hanging out with a, a gang of other helicopter fanatics right around the globe that are keen to learn more about the helicopter industry. In the middle of March this year, a volcano in Iceland erupted and has been oozing out lava ever since. As you can imagine, any time ancient molten rock from the Earth's mantle starts to flow onto the surface, it makes for quite an attention-grabbing sight. Not surprisingly, the best place to catch a view is from the air. One of the photos I saw being passed around on social media was taken by Iceland Coast Guard pilot Trickery Steith Helgeson. That seemed like as good an excuse as any to find out more about flying in a corner of the world that not many of us get to. I reached out to Trickery to see if he would be keen to tell us more about it. Now, Iceland is a long, long way north. Picture, if you would, for comparison, the very bottom of South America, as close as you can get to Antarctica without swimming. Well, that puts you at 56 degrees latitude south. Well, Iceland is 65 degrees latitude north, another 9 degrees or 540 nautical miles, again closer, this time to the North Pole. In this chat with Trickery, we talk about helicopter aviation in Iceland, the Coast Guard Service, and about the current volcano action that they have going on. I've always had a big interest in flying. Um, my dad was a, or is actually an air traffic controller. And for me, going to the airport when I was a kid, that was kind of the highlight of my year. So going and checking out different planes and seeing the tower and everything. And I kind of always knew that I wanted to be in aviation, but I did not really see myself as an air traffic controller and I didn't envision myself flying um, kind of these long haul routes, which is the predominant uh, part of the uh, aviation here in Iceland. So I took a private pilot license on a, on a fixed wing and one of the instructors there was a pilot with the Coast Guard. And when he was telling me about kind of his day and, and his work, that, that really rung a bell for me so i figured you know hey that, that's that's what i would like to do so that's how i came into into flying helicopters and on the way there I, you know I, I had to finance it just like everybody else i decided that trying to stay close to aviation would be you know beneficial so i started loading bags and cargo at the uh, airport when i was about yeah 18. did that for three years and then i did a 
what we call a flight dispatchers course and uh, did flight planning for Iceland Air for three summers and uh, did a year of, of law school before going and doing the training in the US on, on the helicopters. So I did a private license there. Yeah, where did you train? Um, so I, uh, I did my Icelandic PPL on the fixed wing and then I went to Oregon to Hillsboro. It was called Hillsboro Aviation back then. I think it's called Hillsboro Aero Academy now. And I did my private license there. And that was in 2007. And then we had the big financial meltdown and, and everything kind of the, the world uh, tumbled over, especially here in Iceland. So I had to take, yeah, three, four years off my studies to save up because getting funds to continue with the training was just basically impossible. Interest rates would have been like 25% or something. Wow. So it was just huge. You know, it, it was just an impossibility for me. I continued working with, with Iceland Air as a flight dispatcher, and then I moved over to a different company, a small charter airline, and I started doing quality audits for them, or compliance audits, as it's called now. And uh, I did ground ops mainly to begin with. Um, on, their, on, on all of their destinations, they had about 100-plus destinations, all over uh, Europe and uh, a little bit into the Middle East, Egypt, Tunisia, and Oman. And uh, I did that for oof, maybe six years or something. Yep. And uh, yeah, and then um, my transition into helicopters was that I, um, along with my training, I saw an ad in the paper that uh, one of the sightseeing helicopter companies here in Iceland, they needed a uh, compliance uh, audit, uh, compliance manager. So I applied for that and did that part-time for, yeah, and then full-time for for seven years. I started flying as well for the last uh, couple of years as a pilot with them as well. And then I moved over to the Coast Guard. It seems to be a way, like everyone's got different stories of how they get started, but it's often that first yeah. job. You've got to have some other skill set that you can bring with you. And you had the, yeah. you know, the, the auditing yeah. side uh, and then get a leg yeah. up into the, the flying side once you've got a, a foot in the door. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's really it's really tricky to get that first uh, leg up. And if you have something else that's, you know, it's a lot of times it's good to be somebody's cousin, but if, if you're out of luck, um, you, if you bring something else to the table that is of value, it really, really helps your career in, in kind of making that first and most, maybe most important step. And Trickery, we might talk about the first job where you're flying tours, but, I guess as we do that, can you describe, you know, I guess some of the tour locations, but with that, just the mm -hmm. geography of Iceland. So obviously on the, on the yeah. fixed wing side, it's, as you said, it's long haul. It's, it's pretty much if you're going to jump in a, yeah. a fixed wing, you know, you're going yeah. a long way. What's the domestic scene like? Like how long does it fly? How long does it take to fly across Iceland? What's the, the elevations? Uh, yeah, yeah. You want to just tell us a bit about the island. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, we fly the, the airports H225, the Super Puma. It's in zero wind, it's um, at max max speed, maybe doing like 140 knots. So it takes us about an hour or 50 minutes to get one from one end to the other, if nothing is uh, hindering us in, in terms of weather or turbulence rising and things like that. So that's kind of the, the, the far edges of, of the country itself. We have a 
because we're in the middle of the ocean, we have quite a lot a lot of area around us, so we we go you know further than that out out uh, out to sea. But uh, yeah, about an hour or fifty minutes. If we're going from uh, our base is here in in Reykjavik in Iceland, so we flying from from there. If we go to the north part, it's about an hour, hour and ten minutes, something like that. So those are kind of the the far edges of the distances. Mm. In terms of low, lower safes and and mountain heights, is it is it high terrain? Yeah, it is. Um, it is not that high. I mean, the highest peak is about two thousand one hundred and twenty meters, which is not a lot, but it's like yeah, six six thousand plus feet. But typically, the the mountain mountains are between maybe two, three, or up to four thousand feet, because of the geological positioning of Iceland on the on the globe. We are actually quite a bit warmer than we should be. We should be covered by by ice, like if if this was uh, the same location in Greenland. But um, given the Gulf Stream, it kind of keeps us a little bit warmer during the winter times. So. We have basically all of the population, I would say probably 90, 99% of the population is based around the coastline uh, below maybe 200 meters in elevation. Because once you go over that line, it, it starts being a lot colder and you start having a lot longer winters and, and things like that. So basically everything is around the coastlines uh, and the low-lying areas. In the highlands, it is uh, basically empty, especially during the winter times. So it's a fairly, fairly substantial amount of, of land mass that's, yeah, very difficult to to kind of stay for any longer periods. You must, you must see Summer some challenging. Kind of, yeah, I was going to say you must see some challenging weather during the the year then. It is. It is. Um, we get about. We can say that we have about three seasons of fall. So it's always kind of transitioning back and forth between plus and minus snow showers, rain showers, and kind of kind of tricky weather to, to kind of uh, operate and navigate in. So so that's that's about that's a fairly large portion of the year that is kind of uh, in this transition. And it makes for very, very interesting flying, lots of high winds and things like that. With the Coast Guard, am I getting it right where you don't have like a, a defence force as such? So the Coast Guard would be the, the closest equivalent? It, it is. It is a government agency, but we have uh, what we would call, I guess, civilian contracts to begin with um, when we're hired. Um, we need to have our, our commercial and instrument licence with a multi-crew attachment. And then once we're hired, then we will do a type rating course and uh, and a conversion course with, with the Coast Guard as an operator. But it is true, in Iceland, we don't have a military. We don't have an Air Force or a Navy or, or anything like that. So uh, we bear the responsibility of uh, some of those uh, items. Um, so, yeah. Um, and uh, as well, we don't have any uh, HEMS operators, uh, helicopters, or uh, a police uh, flying helicopter. So we, we do those things as well. Okay, so you cover yeah. Okay, so air ambulance, all the so pretty much all, all the government flying. You would be like the the government yeah. air wing as well as the, the coast guard. Yeah, exactly. So, um, 
when we're doing the our uh, transition over to the the two to five in, in France uh, a couple of years ago, we we're kind of talking to the instructors about you know our flying and, and all of that, and we described all of this, and then we said you know and then you know sometimes we do also movie flying. Uh, it happens. Uh, we do some sling work. We do uh, hoist uh, as well. Uh, with the with the search and rescue portion, we were NVG qualified and competent, and then do these uh, survey flights and assist the uh, kind of the communication department uh, in terms of of uh, supplying for them if if they're needed and the heavier load uh, kind of lifting if the civil operators are are not able to lift the, the heavier loads we do that so we do you know very varied operations and uh, these uh, VVIP flights for, for foreign dignitaries and things like that. We do that on occasion as well. So, yeah, it's How a very you... diverse program. Absolutely. How do you do the scheduling? Like, do you have an aircraft that's on standby for, you know, Coast Guard Ocean Rescue type thing and then you have another aircraft which is for all that hash and trash, all the other tasking? Or is it just you have an aircraft online and you just get tasked with any of those jobs on that particular day? It is our primary mission is the search and rescue for for the for the sea, so that kind of takes priority number one for everything. Occasionally, when we have these different types of tasking, we might change uh, have a designated aircraft for that, so that uh, we don't have to run away with it. But that depends on having aircraft available and also crew. So sometimes you might get assigned to a specific detail for a day or two. But generally speaking, it is the search and rescue aircraft that is doing it. It's fully, fully equipped and has everything with it. And we we drop whatever we're doing in a minute or two, and then we go go on with the mission if, if that is needed. And tricky, how big is the fleet? How many helicopters are there? Currently, we have... We have two operational two to fives, and we're getting a third one. And historically speaking, we've been operating with three different, uh, uh, yeah, aircraft for the last uh, ten or fifteen years. So, so three helicopters would be the the fleet that we're going for. Right. Okay. It's uh, yeah, it's a lot to cover. For I guess it comes down to population size and and what's going on as well. But to have uh, yeah. So many, yeah, have the air ambulance, coast guard, all the other things tied in. Those uh, they're mm-hmm. two very, you know, two or three very valuable assets. Yeah, exactly. And and Iceland is a population of about three hundred and forty thousand people, so it is not huge. And the landmass is, yeah, a little bit over one hundred thousand square kilometers. The search and rescue area is of one point seven million square kilometers, which is absolutely huge. And in terms of the way that we see it is that we're, we're by doing everything with a big sledge, you know, sometimes it, it costs more money to go and pick uh, up somebody from a car accident 20 minutes out. Uh, you could solve it with a, with a cheaper platform. But uh, in terms of, of having the assets and having everybody trained and, and everything like that, we think that in the end, we're actually saving quite a lot of money just by having, yeah, essentially now... Yeah, six crews, cockpit crews, uh, doing all of the flying 24/7, uh, 365 days a year. We're able to to solve a lot of problems with with just uh, six different crews. Well, as you said, the, the search area that you have must be massive offshore, because I, I haven't looked at the, the globe for a while. But 
the rum line that would go from the US to, to Europe, the, a lot of the shipping would sort of bend north up and, and come within your area of operations. Yeah, yeah, true. That is true. And also the uh, the the air traffic across the, the Atlantic uh, follows the same route. So we occasionally have aircraft diverting into, into Kaplavik uh, Airport, which is the big international airport about yeah, 25 miles from, from Reykjavik. Um, we get scrambled uh, occasionally for, for those types of things as well. But yeah, we, we sometimes met back from, from ships passing, passing by or things like that. What's the longest runway? Oh, sorry, sorry, not runway. What's the longest um, rescue that the service has done? Have you had to sort of bounce off a, a Coast Guard ship to refuel and keep going? Like, how, how far out do you go? <laughs> yeah, we've had to do that. When we had the, uh, previously we had the, uh, the AS332L1, and we have had that uh, configured as uh, a HIFIR platform. So we were able to do in-flight refueling from Coast Guard vessels. I remember one flight uh, where I was in the, the backup helicopter and we positioned uh, all the way to the east and the primary helicopter, they flew to the east, but they fueled up on a Coast Guard vessel uh, north of the country and then they went 130, 40 miles offshore and went back to the Coast Guard vessel, picked up more fuel and continued to Reykjavik. And I think their airtime was uh, six plus hours for wow. that mission. I think I've seen photos of it done, but can you describe how that works? Do you drop a, a cable down and pick up the hose and then hover off the side and, and try and connect it? How, how does that work? Yep, yep, essentially. Um, the fuel nozzle is, is then on the front of the, the sponsor. We drop the uh, the cable, the hoist wire down to the ship and we pick up a, a hose. I think it's uh, yeah, 150, 200 foot long hose. Uh, we hoist it up, connect it and ground it and then we give them hand signals because uh, we're not allowed to use any radio transmission due to static uh, when we're doing the hoisting. And we give them hand signals for them to start fueling. And it takes, yeah, you, you can maybe get about, yeah, 1,000 kilos of fuel in eight minutes or something. And it's just going in the normal in the normal fuel port? So you have like a, a crewy on the side holding the, the nozzle into the side of the helicopter? Uh, no, it just it just hooks up just like a regular uh, jet a pressure pressure fuel um, yeah so so it just hooks up to the aircraft and it's just being being pumped in quite quickly and we can we can fill it up uh, basically all the way depending on how much fuel we need uh, and then we lower the lower the ask them to with hand signals to stop the uh, fueling and lower the hose and and off we go so all of that in a in a hover maybe. 60 to 100 foot hover next to the ship. In varying weather states. <laughs> it sounds really easy. It rolls, yeah, rolls yeah. the tongue when you describe it, but uh, it's, it's something yeah. you're not going to try and do for the first time, I reckon. No, I guess not. I'm like, uh, we would, uh, you know, it's always in your back of, of your mind when you when you do something like this, that uh, you take the fuel because it's nice to have, not, as, not that it's uh, a necessity. So that, you know, it might shorten the trip, or, or you you always have the option of, of diverting into an airport for a, for a fuel uh, fill up uh, in case. So it is a it is a of convenience and, and trains extension instead of of being something that we do um, you know when, when beyond the point of no return to a different place. Place. Are you always flying in immersion suits, like just for your own safety? Because obviously, if you guys 
going in the in the ocean, it's going to be a while and you get the, the second crew out to you guys. So there's not a lot of coverage yeah. for, for you as a rescuer. No. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, we when we're flying offshore, we always wear a, an immersion suit. We have a we have a yeah a life vest and a locator beacon and all that and, and stuff bottle with us. But uh, when we're flying inland, we we try to slip into something a little bit more comfortable. <laughs> gotcha. uh, a Nomex suit is, uh, is something that we wear inland. But if we're flying, you know, greater distances, we will. We'll have the immersion suit with us in case something happens. I just had, I guess, one or two more questions on the Coast Guard, but then we'll talk about the, the volcano uh, that's active at the moment. Just quickly on uh, Wikipedia, again, it looked like each of the individual aircraft have like a, a Nordic or a Viking sort of name. So are your aircraft mm-hmm. got titles that tie in with mythology? Yeah, they do. They're actually named after the, the Valkyries, the, the uh, the female gods or goddesses. So each of them them uh, have a different uh, different name. So yeah, so they're they're actually called uh, the the aircraft is is called Sif. Uh, the, the helicopters are named uh, Gro, Air, and uh, Gnau. That's the latest one that's coming from Norway. Uh, hopefully in a week or two. So they they all have a reflection of that. And the Coast Guard vessels, uh, the ships as well, they're, they're named after the uh, the uh, well the, the gods themselves. So we have Thor and we have Tyr, uh, we have Odin. So they, they all have these kind of, uh, yeah, reflections of, of the Nordic uh, uh, mythology. Fantastic. Okay, well, let's let's talk about the, the volcano that's active at the moment. And I'm, I'm assuming it's a you know, full-on volcano. I've only seen snippets from the news, but... What's it like at the moment? I'm assuming you've been up and, and had a look at it and, and seen the lava flows. Uh, I don't know. Is there, is there always lava flowing somewhere on the island? Like, is that something that's different or you guys are used to that? We're, we're used to volcanoes and we're used to having eruptions, but unlike, for example, Hawaii that basically has a 24-7 volcano erupting, uh, the system here kind of, uh, we average about a, an eruption every two or three years. I think that's kind of our running average for the last hundred years. And bear in mind, I'm not a geologist, so so you know the, it's a rough it's a rough estimate. We have about a hundred different volcanic systems that we would call um, being active systems, uh, meaning that they've erupted sometimes in the last ten thousand years since the last ice age. So they're they are all capable of of having these eruptions. Uh, about every two or three years, we have an actual eruption from these craters or fissures. It is th- this eruption that, that you saw the picture of is actually quite an interesting eruption because it's very close to Reykjavik or, or you know, relatively close to Reykjavik. It's about 25 to 30 nautical miles from Reykjavik. And you can actually see it uh, if you have a house on the on the side of the, of the city that is kind of looking over it. You can actually see the, the red. The light shimmering in the in the sky in the night, um, so it is very close by, and it's the first eruption in that system on the Reykjanes Peninsula that uh, kind of has uh, both the international airport and, and Reykjavik in about 800 years. So, it, you know, because of that, it, it is quite an interesting event. It's been going on for two and a half weeks now, just about just about so, and uh, it started off. Uh, yeah, 
just after 11 o'clock one evening and we had a flyover the, the first evening. It kind of looked small and cozy and in a very tucked in valley. So it, it's as contained as it could be, but it has grown quite a bit since then. So it took a little bit of time for the, for the glowing uh, lava to kind of melt up the, the, the ground. And it, it changes very quickly. It builds up these craters and the craters then they kind of fall down and, and uh, cave into themselves and the lava kind of continues flowing out. And yeah, a couple of days ago, there was a new fissure that opened about 700 meters away from the, the first one. And you can see that in the daylight as well, that you know the, the earth started just opening up and there was very little, if any, indication of it uh, in terms of any earthquakes or, or things like that. So so it, it, it kind of sneaks up on you. Uh, and now that, that uh, fissure, I think it's a few hundred meters long and there was a, a third uh, kind of crack or fissure that opened up last night. So it is a kind of rapidly changing or, or evolving uh, kind of scene. And does it reach the ocean or is it it's still sort of flying down the hillside? It is still in the hillside, and and it, you know, unless it moves quite drastically in in terms of distances with the fishers, it's unlikely to reach the sea, you know, for quite some time, months or or possibly even years. But uh, it could it could very well happen. And the things the thing that the geologists think uh, are quite interesting about this eruption is that the magma is very primitive, meaning it's coming from very deep within the the ground. So from a depth of what they estimate is about 20 kilometers. So, and the, the significance of that is that it is uh, more easily flowing and it's uh, more likely the, to continue for a very long time. So it, it has uh, similar characteristics in terms of the, the components within the magma uh, to eruptions that continued for maybe 40 years. Right. So possibly we could be looking at an, uh, an event that will last, you know, most of my working time. But uh, when you talk to a geolog geologist, they will they will give you all options and say, well, we don't know. So <laughs> we'll see. I'm, I'm just trying to. In a couple of weeks. I'm just trying to picture it. You know, say this goes on for five years or so, where you, you're flying an area and you fly past. You go, oh yeah, that's just the. You know the the, uh, yeah. the lava coming out of the ground there, and you, you get used to it to the point where it's, it's not even something you notice as you go past. It's, it's uh, yeah, yeah. quite quite weird. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it is weird. It um, it is weird the things that you can get used to. And a couple of weeks already, you're we're starting to get more used to it. But but it, I mean, it's still a big attraction. It would would have been very interesting if this was not during COVID times. Because um, within the first 10 days, I think there were 36,000 people that marched up to the mountain and, and had a look at it here in Iceland. So it's been a, a major uh, source of, of, of physical activity for, for Icelanders, marching up to a volcano and, and having a pee. <laughs> oh, well, look, hopefully if the COVID situation you know, settles down a little bit and, and travel can start again, you definitely draw the crowd. Because I was going to ask about the, the local... Uh, helicopter tour operators again uh, you know I imagine so much of their work would be tourism based which has dried up but yeah. um, I don't know if they've been out flying over and taking locals out to have a look from the air 
yeah, it's been basically getting in and out of, of uh, Reykjavik Airport. It, it was a, kind of like a ghost town uh, maybe a month ago. But uh, now in the last few couple of weeks, uh, it's been like flying in and out of a major major airport. It's really just difficult getting in and out and getting your time on the frequency because everybody's flying and uh, the, the uh, helicopter companies are flying very extensively into there. Before the COVID uh, kind of scene started, uh, started wreaking havoc, uh, there were maybe ooh, maybe eight or ten helicopters uh, doing sightseeing flights in and out of Reykjavik and, and in Iceland and doing heli-skiing and all of that. And uh, they're basically all of them, if they're not down for maintenance for the winter, they're all, all of them are flying in and around that uh, eruption. Every, every, every minute that it's, it's possible. So there's a, there's a huge, huge crowd uh, in terms of, of both people and, and helicopters around that uh, volcano. I've never seen uh, lava. When you fly over, I guess it depends on how high you're flying over. Is there a smell associated with it? Can you actually smell anything from the cockpit? If you're not careful enough to be uh, upwind or kind of to the side of it um, with the wind, kind of strong, strong wind blowing, it, it is a very, you know, nasty sulfuric smell. Um, associated with this primitive magma is, uh, you know, a very, very toxic, uh, lots of CO2, CO and, and sulfur. So you can really, really smell it if, if you, if you go into the, into the kind of the smoke from it and it is quite dangerous as well if we have calm winds and things like that to for people walking in the in the leaves of the hills and things like that because it, it accumulates it's heavier than air and it can be very toxic flying around it is is fairly easy you don't feel too much thermal activity uh, you know i try to stay uh, you know outside of the edges of it so i don't get any thermal activity from it and uh, as long as you stay out of the plume, it, it is a fairly you know, comfortable thing to fly around. Do the engineers have any feedback in terms of um, you know, where on the engine or anything different there? I've just been reading about you know, a couple of possible power losses where people come off oil rigs and fly through a, a gas plume and yeah. obviously it displaces the oxygen and the engine flames out. So mm-hmm. is, there, mm-hmm. is there any feedback from the engineers to stay away? Or? Because of, of this type of uh, thing happening, fairly frequently this doesn't not really come as a surprise so we're, we're a little bit used to it and we have procedures in place most of the procedures tend to talk about um, ash and things like that because they have a very rapid impact on the engine uh, engine intakes and the leading edges of the of the blades but uh, as a you know general guideline and, and something that we practice is that we, we try to stay away from the plume and we try to stay, we don't land or, or hover in a place that where it's at all likely that uh, we have accumulation of this kind of gas. So we, we kind of, as a, just a airmanship thing, you stay away from it. Gotcha. Okay. Look, it's it's definitely something we're going to. It's not something we uh, we deal with in Australia. That's for sure. So it's uh, I think we're probably one of the the least active uh, continents or, or places. Yeah. If I can take you back to when you were flying uh, tours, then before you started with the Coast Guard, what were some of your favourite places to, to take people to? If people are listening and they're, they're planning their their Iceland trip for for post COVID, where where should they take helicopter yeah. tours from to? In, in terms of 
helicopter flying. Um, it is very kind of, I think it's a very personal choice for, for people where they want to go, how, you know, what they want to see and, and how much money they actually want to spend because it can be quite expensive. What typically happens if we have an eruption is that all the activity will kind of focus around that place for years to come. So the last eruption, I've, I don't know how many tens and maybe hundred plus tours I did to the last uh, place of, of an active volcano or an active eruption because people wanted to see something that was fresh, even though it was still not, you know, erupting. Uh, that's what people wanted to see because it was something that they remembered from from the news. They remembered Eyjafjallajökull and they remembered how all air travel, you know, ceased for uh, for about a month, and they remember cleaning ash from the cars and things like that. So everybody wanted to see that, and and I think in terms of, of flying, the same will happen to this thing. Uh, people will want to see this, but uh, the glaciers are are very nice, very beautiful uh, places to be. They have tours about maybe two hours in, in kind of uh, the total with the flying time of one hour plus where they fly around the coast, the black beaches, uh, black sandy beaches, into the mountains, uh, up to the glaciers. They see the cracks and crevices of the of the uh, glaciers and things like that. And I think that's a really, really cool thing to see, um, you know, and not too, not too expensive kind of within everybody's reach. What helicopter types are they using for the tours? I think we have now, there's a company doing with R44, maybe R66. But predominantly, they are flying the uh, the AS350, the H130, and uh, Bell 407. So it's a it's a fairly different mix. So if, if you have a specific preference for a specific helicopter or helicopter manufacturer or this like, you can you can kind of choose where you want to be. And there's no helicopter training there at all, is it? So that's why you had to go to the US to do the, the training. Um, yeah, yeah, basically, um, there's nobody that's kind of actively pushing helicopter training here in, in Iceland. They had a training school for for many years, but um, following the EASA input or the regulations back in yeah way back when they they closed uh, their operation, so. That's why I had to go to the States to, to do it. And also, you know, if it would have been available in Iceland, it probably would have been just too expensive. The U.S. is, is much more, uh, you know, budget-friendly place. And then, so regulations, then you come under EASA or you have your own regs? We do We do follow the EASA regulations. Iceland is, is not a part of the European Union, which uh, EASA is basically, yeah, the regulatory authority for but uh, Iceland has a, a special agreement with uh, the European Union. So along with uh, two other countries, they, they form a uh, kind of coalition and they have a special arrangement with the European Union called the EEA uh, Treaty. And uh, we follow all of the EASA regulations as a result. So we're a member of a common market, if you if you would, for, for aviation and, and a lot of other things. Okay, so your license would be... Basically, completely transferable, and you're essentially flying on a on a EASA license. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any EASA type aircraft that would be yeah, eligible to fly, given the correct training. Just on, on, on pretty much finishing up on questions. It's, it's super interesting. It's always I always love just finding out about how people do it in a, in another country, and and 
what the unique things are. Like they're all helicopters, but it's just different uh, wherever you go. Um, on your yeah. uh, on the Coast Guard machines, what's the crew? Do you fly with you? Two, fly with two pilots up front and two crewies in the back. What's the what's the crew that you're on? For a full full search and rescue uh, helicopter mission, fully equipped, we have a captain and we have a co-pilot up front, and then we have three in the back. So we have rescue man that is uh, also doubling up as a navigator um, and monitoring the uh, the cameras and things like that, different uh, things on, on his monitor. We have a hoist operator. The hoist operators are all trained aircraft mechanics and have a full CRS on the, on the aircraft as well. So that's the uh, fourth person. And then we have a doctor with us as well. So it's a five-man crew. So it's quite a, quite a big crew. Absolutely. Okay. Well, they're, they're big aircraft. So uh, yeah, big, big crew, big aircraft, and, and sometimes long distances. Yeah. Do you do you have internal like an extra like bladder tanks or an extra tank that you put inside? We don't. We don't carry internal extra tanks. We do carry the uh, the external extra tanks, the forward tanks. So uh, yeah. So we have a, a little bit of extra fuel in that, but uh, we don't carry any any more than the kind of the standard uh, configuration okay gotcha look yeah, yeah. trickery thank you yeah that's been awesome chatting so uh, thank you so much for yeah i know i reached out on, on facebook and got the message back but for being open to have a chat uh it's super yeah, appreciated welcome. yeah welcome it was it was, it was fun Trickery has sent through some photos of the lava flow and the Coast Guard helicopters for the blog that goes with this episode. If you've got as far as episode 99 of this podcast, then hopefully you've jumped on the website at some point. If it's been a while, though, or you're a new listener, then rotarywingshow.com is the place to go. You can look back at photos from all the past guests and put faces to the names. And, yeah, especially for this one, you can see some, some shots of Iceland there and uh, their operations. At time of recording this, the, the Mars helicopter, Ingenuity, has just completed its third flight. Unless you've been living on a rock, you've probably seen some coverage of the first flights on another planet. I'm a, a huge space geek, and we should probably acknowledge the, the NASA and JPL team that has pulled this off. And even better than it, it was a rotorcraft. Just some trivia on the flights. Akeo has given Ingenuity the India Gulf Yankee tail rego and initially the the site where it was taking off from was called Jezero Crater Airport with the AKO abbreviation JZRO since then the landing site has been titled Wright Brothers Field we often think about high density altitude operations here on earth and the impact on performance i haven't calculated the temperature side of things but if we think of the ISA atmosphere at sea level as being 1,013 hectopascals. Well, Ingenuity is working with an air pressure of just 6 hectopascals on the surface of Mars. That's 170 times less dense air than ISIS sea level. It's equivalent to flying at 100,000 feet. It's crazy stuff. So we might have some implications for World Helicopter Day going forward. We might have to upgrade to Solar System Helicopter Day. World Helicopter Day is Sunday, the 15th of August this year in 2021. 
it's still a ways off and a lot of things are going to depend on the COVID situation in different countries. If you think that your company, organisation or flight school would like to hold an event for World Helicopter Day this year, now is the time to start thinking about it. It's still one of the, the best vehicles out there to leverage for local publicity and as a way of bringing people from your local community in to see the helicopters we operate and to learn more about the kinds of careers in the helicopter industry. There is a, a heap more info over at worldhelicopterday.com and by submitting your event, you get exposure not just on the website and the day's social media platforms, but also in the different press releases that go out to media. And look, after the last year and a bit that we've had, there is probably not that many helicopter companies that couldn't do with a, a bit of extra publicity. If you're looking for something to add to your resume and would be happy to volunteer some time to organising the day, then drop an email to hello at worldhelicopterday.com because we definitely need some help covering the different countries just so we get that uh, coverage out there and, and can contact people and let them know about the day. Look, it's been a pleasure as always to get this out to you. Thank you for taking the time out to listen. If you like the show and the episodes, please consider if you want to support in any way. I haven't actually sat in the cockpit now since the start of the year and probably won't for some time yet as I'm back studying full-time for some IT qualifications. So these episodes are a bit of a passion project that I carve time out for. Look, if you did want to throw in a dollar here or there so you could get these helicopter-specific episodes into your newsfeed, please take a look on Patreon for the show or look at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. As we head out, uh, massive thanks to these listeners for your support. It's really appreciated, and stay safe out there. Mark, Ian, Hal, Stephen, Alidar, Ben, Jeff, Mike, Bill, Jason, Brent, Michael, AJ, Mark, Shannon, Kirillin, Eric, Jake, Chris, Gareth, John, Heath, Kevin, Tony, Peter, Jason, Michael, and Riddell. 